Gracious Father, I just pray that you would give us understanding of your word uh, in this uh, difficult passage. Uh, there will still be things that we don't fully understand and comprehend, uh, but I just pray that you would give us understanding with all that we need to know of your great love for us and all the, the great uh, mystery of the incarnation of, of uh, who Jesus is. Uh, please give us understanding of your word and, and all that you've done for us through Christ. <coughs> Amen. Okay, so this is our, our last week in Luke for a little while. Uh, as we start, as you've probably heard by now, if you have been listening, that there, there is a Christmas series coming up. We've been, yeah, going on about that a little bit for a while. But uh, you've also probably gathered the theme has been kind of Christmassy already over the last month, uh, covering the Gospel of Luke and Christmas songs and things like that. So we're just all out celebrating two months of Christmas because why not celebrate Jesus? We're going to be doing that you know, all the time anyway, so why not have a Christmas theme for a couple of months? Um, yeah, but this passage is actually a little bit different uh, than the, the last few weeks um, going through Luke because um, it's not actually about Jesus as, as a baby uh, and it's not about his later ministry either. So this is, this is a pretty unique passage. Um, all, all, the, all the gospel writers are all unique in their take on things of, of focusing on Jesus' life from, from different angles uh, so Matthew starts with the nativity story and then jumps straight ahead to Jesus' ministry. Uh, Mark just dives straight in. John the Baptist and Jesus, is, they're already adults. They're already uh, going into ministry. Uh, John covers it from a different angle, gives a, a prologue about how uh, Jesus existed eternally as God and now he's come in the flesh. But then he still just fast forwards straight through to uh, Jesus calling the disciples uh, and, and so Luke is, is unique. He, he covers the nativity story, story. he covers uh, Jesus' ministry, but then we have this one passage here uh, where Jesus is a 12-year-old, his, his youth. So there's, there's nothing else like it in history. There's, there's, this is the only insight that we have into this uh, time frame of Jesus' life. And then we actually have nothing from when he's 12 to when he's 30. There, there's nothing in the Gospels. And so they're actually commonly referred to as the, the missing years of Jesus, and as a result of that, there's been plenty of different conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, what happened during these years? Some, something that the gospel writers don't want you to know. They've, they've covered it up and they've intentionally, you know, skipped over those details. Uh, so most of those, these conspiracy theories involve people trying to fit the message of Jesus into their own agenda. So uh, there's a group of Buddhist monks uh, that believe that during these years, Jesus travelled all the way to either India or Tibet... And uh, he came to teach them that Buddhism is the true path, which is rather convenient. Um, so is, is there any historical evidence for that? Well, I've, I've compiled all of the historical evidence onto the following slide. Nope, nothing. Okay, moving on. Uh, no, not really. But, um, same, same thing happened again a, a few years ago. I um, was at the, one of the Adelaide Fringe Festival things. And I caught up with a friend who I used to go to uni with. Um, his... Life uh, took a very different path. He was very passionate about the legalisation of, of various illicit drugs. Uh, that was his calling in life, was to do that. Everything revolved around that. Um, you know, told me I was wasting my time in medical research because marijuana has cured every disease known to man and we'd all be fine with that. Uh, and then we got talking about Jesus and, and the message of Jesus, what he truly came to, to preach. And he said that, you know, he doesn't want anything, anything to do with what the Bible teaches, nothing to do with what the church teaches, uh, because they've all covered up the true message of Jesus, which is that we can 
experience God through taking drugs and then that's how we'll experience the, the truth of God. So there's a valuable lesson in not taking drugs, just going by that theory. But, but his, his reasoning for this was because the Gospels skipped from when Jesus is 12 to when he's 30. And he says, how can you explain that? You've, you've got to explain if Jesus is so important, if, if your whole religion revolves around him, surely you want to know what he was doing for most of his life, right? So has there been some kind of cover-up? Um, so, you know, putting aside his ridiculous theory, uh, it is actually a, a valid question. It, it's, it's pretty good to think about. What was Jesus doing for his whole life? And so I think we're going to learn a, or get a little bit of insight into that in this passage. You know, and, and obviously, you know, I think the reason why the Gospel writers focus on Jesus' birth and his death and resurrection is because of what it accomplished. There's, that's what the Gospel writers were wanting to focus on. There's valid reasons for that. But I think, yeah, going through this passage, we're going to get a feel for, for what Jesus spent 30 years in Galilee doing. So let's uh, dig into our passage. So this is Luke chapter 2. Uh, I'll just quickly recap from, from last week. Um, John ended on, on verse 39 and 40. It says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favour of God was upon him. So that's the, the last couple of verses of, of what we call the infancy narratives, all the, the verses about Jesus when he was an infant. And so it ended with his parents raising him in obedience to the, the Jewish law, uh, sorry, his circumcision, uh, the sacrifices offered at the temple in Jerusalem. And, and this passage is kind of going through something similar, but over a, a, a decade later. And it's kind of the same point, though, that Jesus was living in obedience to the law, fulfilling his primary mission, doing the will of the Father, and he was doing it in the temple again. And so he continued to grow in wisdom and obedience and favour with God. Uh, but the difference here, though, in, in the last passages, it was Jesus' parents that were doing it, that they were the one that, that brought him to be circumcised, they were the one that brought him to the temple to offer the sacrifices. Whereas now in today's passage, we see Jesus is the one that's actually initiating this and, and being obedient. So, so let's start in, in today's passage. I'll just read from, from verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then when they began to search for him among the re their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. Okay, so just, just the start of that passage already raises a lot of questions uh, without giving a lot of answers. So like, how did the group travelling back not notice that Jesus was gone for an entire day? You know, for, for all the parents here... If you didn't see your child for the whole day while travelling, you know, and that raise a few questions maybe. But we don't really know. It doesn't really say how this ended up happening. You know? And, and where, where did Jesus stay for three nights? It just says, oh, he was, in, he was in the temple and they found him a few days later. I mean, where, did he have a place to stay? Was there someone that was looking after him? Was he sleeping on the floor just outside the temple? Don't, don't really know. And, and then did Jesus wander off without telling them? Or did he tell them, but maybe they weren't listening? Like, like the time that John and I went for a walk along Burners Beach and specifically told our parents we were going and they, they thought we were lost? But no, it's, 
another story for another time. But we, we don't know whether Jesus told them or he didn't tell them. We don't know where he stayed. Don't know how all the, the nitty-gritty details of how this story eventuated. But that's because that's not Luke's reason for including it. He's wanting to answer something far greater than all of our little curiosities. And I, th- I think there's a lot of things in the Gospels where we have lots of questions and we don't really get answers for them because uh, God has guided them with the Holy Spirit to give us answers to what we actually need, not what we actually want to know the answers to. Okay, so the timing of this passage, they were, they were going there for the Jewish Passover. So this was, this was one of uh, three of the main festivals in the Jewish calendar where basically it was required for everyone to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. And the first of these was, was the Passover, and then it, it went on for about seven days celebrating. So it was, a, it was a huge event. Every faithful, devout Jew in all of Israel would have been ascending up to Jerusalem at the exact same time. And this was all to celebrate God's redemption of his people out of slavery in Egypt. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's kind of cool that at the time, this year that they went to the Passover, uh, the whole Passover story, the whole reason why it happened was to point towards Christ, that God redeems his, his people out of slavery to sin. The whole story of the Passover is fulfilled in Jesus. And this year at the Passover, Jesus was there, but they didn't even, didn't even know that the fulfiller of the Passover was there in their midst. That's, it's not my main point, but it's just kind of cool to think about that... that Um, Yeah, the fulfilment of the Passover was there while they were celebrating. But this this specific passage, and and I think a lot of the Gospel of Luke, this is going to be a recurring theme, is really all about the humanity of of Jesus. I think there's plenty of different ways in which we can focus on how Jesus is is not like us, how he's far greater than we are, he's God and we're not. Um, But there are also so many ways in which his experience is just like ours, that he is fully human. So look down at the next few verses from verse 46. It says, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. So this is a, a pretty strange passage that I've been trying to get my head around to, to preach on. So the, the omniscient, all-knowing God has come down to earth as a young boy and is sitting and is asking questions and learning and growing and growing in understanding. So how do we make sense of that? And, and I think uh, I'm not going to have all the answers in this sermon. I don't think we're going to fully understand it this side of eternity. Maybe we'll never understand all the mysteries of the incarnation. I can't grasp it all. In, in the same way, I struggle to imagine how an all-powerful God was lying as a frail baby in a manger that he was completely dependent upon other people around him. How, how does an all-powerful God come into a human body and get tired, grow weary, get hungry, get thirsty, and even eventually die? So I think we can, we can start to make sense of it a little bit when we understand and know who he is, of what actually happened at the incarnation. When we ask things like, well, is he God or is he man? The answer is both. So the incarnation is where God steps down into humanity, that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, becomes just like one of us, fully human, both fully God and fully man. Not just a little bit of one, a little bit of another, blended together, but both. 
And so that, that's why I think there are a few passages in Scripture where it gives us these really difficult things to answer that we can't fully get our head around. And I think this is, this is one of those times. How does the all-knowing creator of the universe sit in a human body in a temple asking questions, growing, learning? And he was born in unique circumstances. You know, his, his birth was very different to ours. You know, um, we've already learned about the virgin birth over the last few weeks. Um, but, but once he was born, I, I don't think he was lying in a manger with, with full knowledge, full capabilities that he had, that he possessed prior to his incarnation. Uh, so Philippians 2 talks about this. So this Philippians 2 verse 6 and 7 uh, says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he was laying aside some of his attributes. So then he had to learn how to walk and talk. Uh, he, he didn't just, um, you know, wasn't just born and immediately popped out, you know, speaking perfect Hebrew and telling them all, going through the law of the Lord. He had to learn how to walk and to talk. All while completely dependent upon people that he created. But at the same time, we also see here that he wasn't an average child. He asked questions, but they were still astonished with his answers. He, he still had unique wisdom that was unlike anything the, the religious scholars had seen because he was God in the flesh. And, and Hebrews 5.8 says that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what was suffered. But maybe, maybe I just struggle with this, or maybe, I don't know, do you guys struggle with this as well to, to wrap your head around all of this? I think maybe there's a tendency for us to, to overemphasize that he's fully God and we forget about his humanity. And, and, and I think that's probably because of the various kind of heresies that we have around us. They were, they were definitely prevalent in the, in the early church. There were, there were uh, heretics that denied the deity of Christ. And that's why we have things like we, we just sung the, the creed before and, and it's really emphasising the greatness of Jesus, that he is God. And we still have those people today. If you've ever had the Jehovah's, Witness, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door, they'll, they'll say a lot of things that sound pretty accurate, that, that God is the creator, there's one God, he, he sent his son to die for our sins, that it, it all sounds pretty good and then, then you ask them, well, who is Jesus? And... They, they don't believe he's God. They just say he's just an angel. He's not worthy of our worship. He's just a created being. And then there's plenty of uh, atheists and skeptics that treat Jesus the same. They might say, well, he, he was a good moral teacher, which doesn't really make sense because he claimed to be God. So either he is God or he was lying about it. So he can't just be a good moral teacher. That was... C.S. Lewis said that, that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. You, you don't have the option to just say, well, he was a nice bloke and a good religious teacher. And so we're, we're all ready to respond to that. When, when people say Jesus was just a man and nothing more, we're, we're ready to respond to that by saying, how can we explain all the things that Jesus did? The miracles that he performed, the things that he taught, the wisdom that he had, the fact that he's been raised from the dead verifies he is who he says he is. But, but how often do we actually stop and think about Jesus' humanity, that he was fully human? And so in the early centuries, just like the church had to deal with false teachers coming and denying that Jesus was God, there were also these guys called the Gnostics who denied that Jesus was fully human. 
And, and in one of their writings, there's, you know, all these, um, what they call apocryphal gospels, um, you know, the gospel of Mary and the gospel of Thomas and all, all those things written centuries and centuries after. Uh, but there's one called the, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, and it's written by these Gnostics who deny Jesus' humanity. And they even actually have a passage that counters today's passage in Luke 2. They, they kind of have a parallel passage where Jesus is, uh, the, the religious teachers are trying to teach Jesus. Um, but he just, um, you know, when they try and instruct him, he just ar- arrogantly interrupts them and corrects them, uh, refusing to sit under their teaching because they, they didn't understand the concept of a, of a saviour who can come as a human and humbly learn so we don't really have to deal with this type of teaching today. I'm assuming none of us here have had a bunch of Gnostics knock on your door on a Saturday morning trying to teach you that Jesus was really a ghost and didn't have a physical body, that it's probably not a big cult on York Peninsula, I don't think, or, or anywhere now. But, uh, but I do wonder if we actually fall into the same trap, though. I, I think we, we can still be guilty of, of thinking the same way, of, of, of our understanding of Jesus, where he, he walked around and he was glowing and just a white robe floating around everywhere and patting lambs and, and, and losing sight of, of all the ways in which he was fully human. We actually forget that Jesus, in so many ways, is just like us, having the same experiences that we have of growing and learning. But it also means that he experienced... The, the negative aspects of what it means to live in a broken and fallen creation. He's experienced humiliation. Even, even in his incarnation, being willing to come down as a baby and be looked after by parents that he created, the humiliation of that, the, the loneliness, the mistreatment, the rejection, again, by people that he created and loved, his betrayal, all, all the things that are wrong with human relationships that happened at the fall... Jesus stepped into that broken world and, and has experienced it. So he's gone through the same kind of suffering that we go through. But I wonder if we remember that when we experience the same thing. When, when you're feeling alone, when you're feeling rejected, when you're feeling abandoned. I, I know for me, it's probably the same for all of us, that when we experience suffering, we want to be comforted by people who've experienced the very same thing. There's nothing worse than pouring your heart out to someone with something that you're going through and they just don't get it. They just don't understand what you're going through. Or, or they respond to your pain with, with something like, oh, that's just like the time I... And then they give some example that's completely different than what you're going through. It's not even remotely similar. It's always frustrating. I mean, it can be good to find people that are going through something really similar. So that's in uh, 2 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 3 and 4 says... Uh, the God of all comfort comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any, any, in any affliction with the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So it's okay to reach out to other people who understand what you're going through. They've dealt with the same suffering. They've gone through the same thing. They've had the same relationship struggles. It, it, it's okay to, to seek those people out. But I know it's really, really easy to see God as the last resort. That I, I need to go and talk to as many people as I can and get as much advice as possible and then if I'm still not over it, if I'm still not coping, then, then I can go to God. Maybe, if I still need Him. But Jesus should be our first go-to in our suffering. He's the one that truly knows us. He's the one who truly understands he knows what we've been through. Not, not just because he's God and he knows everything, 
But in his humanity, he's experienced it. So we need to stop thinking of God as distant and and unable to empathise with us. He knows what it's like to experience physical pain, uh, weariness, exhaustion. There there are just so many things as we go through the Gospel. I wanted to have a list up on the screen, but there were just too many things. He's experienced weariness. He's experienced exhaustion. For, for all the introverts in the house, he knows what it's like to be sick of being mobbed by people, always having people around that he wants to just go and have some peace and quiet for a little while. He's experienced the consequences of, of other people's sins. He knows what it's like to be mocked and ridiculed. So when we're rejected by others, uh, if you're mocked at work by unsaved um, co-workers, if you're rejected by family members, because of what you believe, you can go straight to Jesus. Maybe that'll be your experience over Christmas this year. Meeting up with family might not be uh, the, the picture postcard uh, happy family that, that Christmas is you know, supposedly supposed to be. But Jesus understands. He's been through the very same thing. He's had family members reject him. Probably one of the big ones that we forget is, is temptation. Jesus understands what you're going through when you're, temp- when you're tempted. So when you're tempted to sin, what is your first response? Is it to run to God? To go directly to Him? Or is it to run from God? Uh, I think we often feel a sense of shame in our temptation, a, a distance from God, that He's high and holy and, and we're not. So when we're tempted to sin, he, He's looking down on us, uh, ashamed of us, wanting to keep his distance because he just can't understand, he can't empathise. But we know from the incarnation, we know he knows exactly what we're going through. Okay, so um, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I've heard people say, well, well, that's different though, because he was without sin, he was God, so he doesn't struggle with the same temptations that I do, because he was just perfect anyway. He's sinless, so he still doesn't get it, fully get what it's like. He hasn't experienced what it's like to sin against God, but he has still experienced temptation. And, and, and I think he's actually probably experienced temptation worse than, than we have. I remember going through this passage with, with one of my lecturers, and um, he said that, that Christ experienced temptation in a way that we, we don't because we just so easily give in to sin and then the temptation goes away because we fall so short. Whereas Jesus would have been tempted to sin and then perfectly resisted so then temptation continued which he then perfectly resisted and then was tempted and then resisted and tempted and resisted. This was a constant battle but where we fail he obeys perfectly. But so the next time that you're tempted, instead of running away from God in shame, instead of trying to fight it in your own strength, if you do try that, let me know how that works out. I can personally testify it doesn't work. We can't do it in our own strength. We need to run straight to Jesus because he knows what it's like. He can empathise with us and then he can give us strength to resist. We see in this passage not just his, his humanity in, in that he grew in wisdom and that he learnt, but that he was perfectly sinless, living for the will of God. 
And, and we see that uh, in another way in which he was, he was uh, perfect and sinless in his life, uh, just in the closing verses. So I'm, I'm skipping ahead for now to the, the final verses. So from verse 51, it says, And he went down with them and came to Naz- Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in the fa- uh, and in favour with God and man. So as he grew in understanding of his, of his mission, he was perfectly obedient to God and his mission was to live sinlessly and obey the Father. Uh, but part of that was being submissive to his parents. And that's another area in which we can struggle, is, is submission. And, and we covered that in the series through First Peter. Uh, and it's also found in other places like Ephesians and, and Colossians. It says that children are, are to submit and to obey their parents. But again, how amazing is that? That Jesus was willing to submit himself to people that he created. So we're called to submit to our parents. And then there was also the example of marriage in in our first Peter series. And it can be tough for for wives to submit to husbands who fail to love them as they should. But we can look to Christ as the example. Then we're called to be obedient and submissive to governments, even when they're ungodly, even when they fail to live up to their biblical expectations. We can look to Jesus when we actually struggle to honour our horribly imperfect, sinful government, because Jesus was living under a much, much worse government than than we do. And he could have overthrown the Roman Empire, uh, the Jewish authorities, when he received a dodgy trial, an unjust trial. He could have called down legions of angels, but instead he let injustice come against him to die for our sins. He could have backed out of the Father's plan to rescue us, But then he submitted himself to the Father, saying, Not my will, but yours be done. And we already see his commitment to this mission, even at the age of 12, when he was in his Father's house, growing in wisdom and understanding, while living in perfect obedience. We see a perfect example for us in submission. But so the big question is, do you actually understand who Jesus is? And I don't just mean theologically what I've been covering so far. Do you understand that Jesus is both God and man? Do you know his mission? Do you know what he accomplished? What he's done specifically for you? So look at, look at Mary and Joseph's response when, when they find him in the temple. So let's look back at, at verse 48. Says, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so bad? Uh, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. So they didn't get it. Even after all that they've experienced, what we've been learning about over the last few weeks, uh, the last couple of chapters, they got to experience the miraculous virgin birth. You'd think that would just convince you for life uh, that Jesus is who he says he is. They got to experience... You know, angels uh, above them when they were uh, when she was giving birth. They, they had shepherds and wise men coming and visiting, but they still didn't get it. Uh, even even later on, when he was performing miracles, they still they actually rejected him until after his resurrection. They didn't fully understand who he was. They didn't get his mission. And his disciples were exactly the same. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the, the great um, professions of faith in the Gospels, like in, in Mark 8, 
Peter realises who Jesus is. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's this amazing uh, revelation that Peter finally gets it. And then Jesus goes and says, and then I'll be going to Jerusalem and I'll be rejected and I'll, and I'll be crucified and then I'll rise. And Peter's immediate response is to rebuke Jesus, saying, oh no, that, that's not going to happen to you. You're, you're the Christ. They, they, they won't reject you. They won't crucify you. He already just didn't get it. He didn't understand the mission of the Messiah to come and to die and to rise again. He didn't get that, uh, uh, the idea, the concept of a Messiah who had to be rejected. And, and Mary and Joseph here didn't fully get it either. Why was he in the temple? Uh, but Jesus' response kind of indicates that they should have got it. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Uh, some of the other, other translations say, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Uh, e either translation, the, the result is the same. The meaning is, is the same. That he came to do the will of the father. That Jesus' mission was to come and to live the life that we couldn't live in perfect obedience to the father. He came to live the life that we should be living, but we failed to do. So we often overlook this too, not just uh, overlooking his humanity, but, but his sinless life. So we often think of the good news, if someone says, what's the gospel? We, we pretty much start right at the end of the story, that Jesus came and he died for our sins and rose again. And that's all true, that is the good news, but we can often gloss over that Jesus came and lived a sinless life for us. So we don't just need a saviour to come and die for us, we need a saviour to come and live for us. So our, our problem isn't just sin. It's a lack of obedience. It's a lack of a perfect, righteous life lived before God. So it, when Jesus came and died for our sins, he wasn't just giving us uh, the opportunity to have a blank slate, to, to start again. And, and when we get saved, uh, we're, we're justified before God. And I've, I've heard people uh, trying to, to give the definition of what it means to be justified and uh, they'll say justified means just as if I'd never sinned, and you know it's a good it's a good one-liner, but it's not biblical. It's not true. It, it's so much more than that in justification. It, it's not that we uh, that Jesus came to give us a clean slate. He doesn't just see us as as a, a zero in the sin count, his his glorious neutral bride or something like that. At the cross and in salvation, there's an exchange in which Jesus takes our sins upon himself on the cross, but then we get his righteous life. So he doesn't just see us as nothing, as blank, as, as the, the slate wiped clean, just as if we'd never sinned. We actually get Jesus' righteousness, the righteous life that he lived. And we see that in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, I don't know if I've got it up there, it says he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. The, Martin Luther, talking about that passage, called it the, the great exchange. So in the same way, uh, when Jesus was on the cross, when he bore our sins, God saw our sins and he punished our sin on the cross on Christ. But then, when we have faith in Christ, God looks at us and sees the perfect righteous life of Christ, that he lived right from day one, all the way through as a child in the temple, 30 years working as a carpenter, in, just going about his daily business in Galilee, living a perfect, righteous life on our behalf before dying on our behalf.
in perfect submission to the Father, both as a child and then when he went to the cross for us. So back, back to our initial question of the what was Jesus doing all, all this time? What about those missing years of Jesus? There wasn't some conspiracy that were covered up by the gospel writers. He was just getting on with exactly what he's doing in this passage. What he was doing when he was 12, he was doing all the decades later. That he was going about the Father's business, growing in wisdom and understanding, that he was living in perfect obedience, that he was submitting himself to those around him. And that's our Saviour. Not just our example and our, our comforter in suffering, but he's also our righteousness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for the, the great mystery of the incarnation. We thank you that you were willing to clothe yourself with humanity, that you stepped down into this broken world to experience what we have experienced. And thank you that you can sympathise with us in our weakness, in our temptations. Thank you for your understanding, your patience. Lord, we thank you for your righteous life that you came and lived for us and we thank you that you were willing to die for us and to, to be raised from the dead to give us eternal life. Lord, we just thank you and we praise you for that. Amen.